Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and today I have a special guest joining me remotely. Chris Call is here to talk with us today. He's the CMO of Pulsera, critical care HIMS medic, also evidently an aspiring ninja as well. So if you see him sneaking around quietly with throwing stars and nunchucks, that's Chris. But in all seriousness, I, I brought Chris on today to the show to discuss a topic that Evidently, I think most people in my life would probably say I'm an expert in, and that is stupidity. And when you think about stupidity and what it means or doesn't mean, uh, it can be hard to define. And now you're asking yourself, why in the world is Patrick talking about stupidity? This is a paramedic EMS podcast. Uh, this came from a uh, web article that I found several months ago uh, based on a conversation between couple guys, Shane Parrish and Adam Robinson, and it was on Farnham Street, which is a finance blog. I'm not a finance expert either, uh, like uh, Robinson, who's a hedge fund investment guru. I'm not in the CIA or a ninja uh, like Parrish, uh, but what struck me from the article, and we'll link it in the show notes because I think it's, it's a quick read and worth everybody taking a look at, is number one, how hard stupid is to define, and number two, how much of the risk factors that basically, you know, put you at, at risk for being stupid apply directly to emergency providers of all shapes and sizes. So to start out where we're going with this thing is defining stupid. And, you know, it's not dumb. It's not a lack of information. Um, it's not the opposite of smart. Uh, the, the definition that I thought was really poignant in the article is stupidity is the act of overlooking or dismissing crucial information, basically when it's staring you in the face. And when we review run sheets here in the office at MCHD, oftentimes the key players, the key uh, bits of information that the medics would need oftentimes aren't hiding. They're not under rocks. You know, they're not behind doors. They're right there on the monitor. And think back as, as you're listening to this, think back to your last Last run review, call review, difficult case. I know I've sat in that chair of have, having to review uh, care that was maybe suboptimal or, or problematic. And, and every single one, for me, has involved missing or not seeing the obvious. Um, one other definition that they uh, discussed in the article was stupidity is the cost of intelligence operating in a complex environment. And I think that if there's, you know, a critically ill patient in the back of an ambulance at two in the morning on Saturday is nothing if not uh, a complex environment and your intelligence has to be operating in that situation. So run through, uh, Chris, the seven risk factors for us uh, that uh, Adam and Shane talked about in the, in the article for making stupid decisions, because as we listen to these, I think they'll all apply. Yeah, thanks, Doc. Uh, you're right. As we're walking through this, and the cost of being stupid or stupidity, you start thinking about, oh, wait, are we talking about lack of intelligence? Or are we talking about um, somebody who doesn't comprehend information well? And it, it's simply not that. The way that this gentleman is defining stupid, and in case you, you said it, 
overlooking or dismissing crucial information. I remember reading the article and then listening to a couple of his podcasts and he says, you know, when you're walking towards a door and you go to go in and you hit the door with your face because it clearly says pull and you thought that you just pushed to go in. The sign's right there. It's very obvious, but where were you at that time, right? Your mind was distracted or you've always done that same thing over and over where you've always pushed the door open. So you assume this next door would push open. And yet when it's right in front of your face, that information, that's where we say, wow, we missed that piece of critical, critical insight that would have helped us with our patients, right? We were pushing instead of pulling when the sign right in front of us told us exactly what to do. It's it's so funny. It's funny you staff. tell the uh, it's oh, yeah. fu it's funny you tell that story. <laughs> I'm going to interrupt you for a second. It's funny yeah. that that's the one you pick because there's an old uh, Gary Larson Farside uh, comic that uh, my mom framed and put in my room, and the sign on the the wall says Midvale School for the Gifted, and the kid is uh, running into the door. Uh, as it says, as, as the sign on the door says, pull. Um, so I exactly. think that's, uh, that's one that is uh, applied in my life in, in various times and probably all, all of ours. Uh, so I think that's a, that's a, that's a perfect example. So yeah, back to the seven, yeah, it, back to the seven risk factors. Yeah. It's, it's, it's relatable, right? Because all of us have either seen or have done that. And it's such a simple example of what he's trying to talk to. And he says, Hey, there's seven risk factors. Now you don't have to have all seven. You can have one of any of these seven. They're not in any particular order. However, if you start having two of these or three of these or all seven, maybe we should be mitigating some of those risks because the chances that you're going to do something stupid are heightened. So let's take a look at these seven and, and you tell me how many of these sound like EMS, whether we're in the helicopter, whether we're in an ambulance, it doesn't matter. Whether we're in the emergency department, Number one, being in a rush. Number two, being outside of your normal environment. Number three, being in the presence of a group. Number four, being in the presence of an expert or being that expert. Number five, tasks that require intense focus. Number six, information overload. And then the last one, physical or emotional stress or fatigue. Any of those respond or, or make sense to you in the world of EMS? I mean, EMS, emergency department, it sounds like the job description, right? It sounds like what we're supposed to do and where we're supposed to be working. I mean, we're always in a rush, right? Scene times, turnaround times, door to dock times, door to aspirin times, you know, it's, it's all one, one big, you know, uh, KPI time metric, right? So number one is, is part of the job, right? How about normal environments? Are we ever in a normal environment in EMS? I mean, it's never sterile. It's always dark. It's loud. It's, you know, in the middle of traffic, it's crying family members, it's barking dogs. It's, you know, uh, you name it. You can, we can go on for. It's the unknown. It's the yeah. unknown. It's, it's yep. never, never planned, right? No one calls nine one one at two o'clock because they had it on their on their to do list earlier in the day, right? Um, groups. I mean, being in the presence of a group. It's it's a uh, it's a team job, right? Um, you know, first responders, firefighters, uh, depending on how your service is set up, uh, police and law enforcement, family. And then we 
you know, then we pick the patient up, we load them in the truck and we deliver them to what? Another group, right? ER docs, uh, ER nurses, uh, techs, trauma teams. Um, you know, it's, it's, you're always in the presence of a group. It's not a, not a solo job, right? What about, um, intense focus? Is that, does that apply to, uh, to EMS, Chris? That's almost a, a dumb rhetorical question, right? Uh, um, you know, there's, Constantly intense focus that's required. I mean, again, it sounds like a job description, right? Uh, you know, pit crew CPR, intent, intense focus. Airway management, intense focus. Um, think about all the information you have in a 15-minute in a transport in the truck. Vitals, 12 lead, uh, AccuCheck, Entitle, family information, uh, med list, allergies, past surgical history, past medical history. Um, and then that's going to occur at 3 a.m. on a Saturday, your fourth shift in a row, you had a pediatric arrest the night before that stuck with you. So physical, emotional, stress, and fatigue. I mean, it's, these are all built-in parts of the job. So we define stupid. Uh, we decided that, that our chosen profession is one humongous steep plunge into a stupid pit. How do we combat this, Chris? What are some ways that uh, in your past experience that you've either combated it or uh, maybe fallen prey to some of these? Wow. So yeah, that's a big question. So I think what we do is we take each one of these and we walk through them because there's, there's lessons learned in each of them. And I mean, the challenge for us in EMS is that just like you said, these seven risk factors are our job, our job description. And so are we ever not in a rush? I don't know if we're in a rush. I think we need to move with intention. Let's start with that one, right? When we move too quickly or rushed, we make mistakes. Um, and those mistakes are what we're defining as stupid right here. So instead of rushing, what do we do? One of the things that I do, um, and I did for years working both for in, in, on a helicopter as well as on the ambulance is that I would, I would plan for that day and I would plan before we were going on the call. Some of the simple things we do is you know, truck checks and making sure all our equipment is ready. We don't do that on the scene. We do that as soon as we get on shift. The same thing though, and I was really regimented about this is that I would lay out all my stuff, my helmet, my jackets, my gloves, my goggles. I would lay them out in a specific order. I would have a list of what I would go through every single time so that instead of being rushed, I, I associate the word rush with chaos, right? So instead of being rushed with chaos, and in your mind, trying to remember everything, I put everything into a system. Oh, all right. So I'm going to go down. Pilots checking weather. I'm going to open up the door to start moving the helicopter out. I have all my gear laid out exactly where I need it. I'm writing down. I'm coordinating. And while we're moving with intention, that's different than the word rush. I like it. I like that a lot. I I would extrapolate that uh, maybe a little bit away from the operational side to the clinical side, uh, for example, delayed sequence intubation. Um, you have a framework and a thought process that you approach with a similar language and a similar uh, mental checklist every time. And you use that, you practice that mentally. Uh, you're not, it's like your sock drawer, right? It's organized by color. It's organized by type and it's laid out neatly. So when you open it, you can find what you need. Um, whereas if you 
haven't thought about delayed sequence intubation, you have no checklist, you're just randomly grabbing factoids and, um, you know, different practice patterns out of your brain, it's going to be chaos instead of rushed with intention. And I, I like that a lot. Um, so checklists don't help if you rush, right? We have to slow down, be intentional, and use similar language, repetitive language, so that it's not not chaotic. I like that. How about number two? Yeah. Yeah, and I, I just wanted to add on to your rushing there, delayed sequence innovation. And this is our induction. One of the things that I have seen a lot in the clinical setting is that clinical timeout, right? Right before some type of high risk, low frequency um, situation that we say stop. Okay. While we're also taking time and going through the list and making sure everything's there, we're also double checking each other. We're, we're walking through what happens if. I always think of it's not a good time in a bad airway. And it's not, will I have a bad airway? It's when I have a bad airway. It's not, that's not a good time to think of plan B and plan C. So that's before you even get into that situation. If this doesn't work, hey guys, we're stopping. We have our drugs drawn up, just double checking. We do have suction. We have our bag valve mask. If we don't get the intubation in this first time, we were gonna come back, uh, reventilate the person, get some more oxygen on board. And then what's the plan team? And walk through that. Everybody calms down, everybody slows down, but in essence, the task gets done more effectively, more efficiently, safely, um, and quickly, right? So instead of rushing, we're just being intentional. That second one you asked about is being outside of our normal environment. Well, that's what we do. Now, some people would say outside of the normal environment is our normal environment, right? But I think what we're talking about here is that even if we talk about car crashes, each crash is not at the same location with the same type of cars, with the same type of injury patterns every time. So even when we talk about motor vehicle collisions, we're talking about rural high speed, ice, snow, rollovers, um, extrication, trauma. Maybe it's a medical incident that happened that caused the motor vehicle crash. I mean, there's so many dynamics in there that is our quote unquote normal environment, which means that we don't have a normal environment. How do we, and I'm gonna ask you this, how do we get around that? What are some factors we can do to help contain or control or limit that area? I mean, I think we could take it back to a lot we discussed in, in number one. And I think some of these themes are going to be recurring, right? We know that we're going to be time challenged. We know that we're going to be uncomfortable in every situation for the most part, is going to be a new one, right? So the, these scream out for structure, for delegation, uh, for checklist utilization, you know, in a methodical approach. Again, if you're pulling your care pattern, your care plan out of thin air every single time, you're going to make mistakes. But if you approach each chest pain with a similar differential, the chest pain killers, we like to talk about here at MCHD, or if you approach your airway with the same delayed sequence pathway, rule of 15s, um, hard stops for blood pressure, hard stops for oxygen saturation. Um, if you approach your, uh, you know, basic airway skills, bag valve mask, OPNP airway, uh, good chin lift jaw thrust, you use your same 
patterns over and over again and you verbalize those, you uh, delegate and you have a solid framework or structure to your, you know, your, your care, I think the rush, the time requirements, the, the new environment that you're going to find yourself in on each and every call is going to be less dangerous. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You guys are familiar, I'm sure. And if our readers, if there's anybody out there and listeners who aren't familiar, we can add it as a must-read book into the show notes as well. But it's the, it's the Checklist Manifesto, right? And in the Checklist Manifesto, he talks about, as a surgeon, we have simple, complicated, and complex. And simple is opening and closing a door complicated are all the steps needed to successfully intubate a patient. And then complex is an example would be raising kids, right? You raise two kids, you only know how to raise kids one way. And yet they, the two children grow could be completely different. That's complex. And he's like, we don't really need a checklist on the simple things of opening and closing the door. We can't put a checklist on the complex. But what are the things that we can do that are complicated? Because there's a lot of moving pieces, but they're pretty standard and they're consistent. And if we do the same thing each way, it's going to minimize all those variables. And that's really what you're talking about. And I think a lot of times emergency providers, I, I speak for emergency docs, and I've heard similar uh, similar vein sort of complaints from, from seasoned paramedics as well. Is like, you know, I don't want to practice cookbook medicine. You know, people complain about checklists and I, I love, I've talked about it on the podcast before, you know, the, the pilots go through the same checklist, the same uh, pre-takeoff checklist, no matter if it's bluebird or storming, no matter if it's a 45 minute flight or a transatlantic flight, they don't, they don't cut corners with their pre-flight prep. And I, I think we get in the same uh, issue, right? It's not a bad airway until it's what? A bad airway. Right. And if you've not completed your your, you know, pre-procedure prep and you've not organized your framework and you've not, uh, you know, briefed your team, um, you know, you can't go back and do that once once there's turbulence. And so uh, I think we have to be um, humble enough to know that, yes, we know how to innovate, but that checklist is there to help us. It's there to help us provide a framework. It's not there to tell you what to do. It doesn't you know, in, in, in a sense that there's still room to uh, make individual patient decisions, uh, depending on the individual patient presentation, you still have leeway in there. But that fallback, that framework is going to be necessary. Uh, every time when we try to deviate from that, that's when I, in my me personally, in my own experience, that's when those mistakes uh, have been made when I don't, don't think about it and assume it's going to be easy and assume it's going to be straightforward. And that's when that's when those those airways or those uh, maybe not so sick patients that turn out to be really sick uh, sneak up on you. Yeah, and I hope and I think and I'm glad to hear um, that your team is really adopting the opportunity to use checklists and walk through that. You know, we were we we were raised in in this area that it all had to be in your mind, and if you didn't keep it all in your head then you must not be a good medic. And I was talking to Mike Tagman and you know he's spoken and has done so many things on leadership and personal development and doing these things. He's like, if I ran an ambulance service now, 
I would buy an iPhone for every one of my medics. I would have them say, it's your phone. I'll pay for it while you work here. I'm going to pay for the phone. I'm going to pay for your monthly. And your only requirement is that you, you know, keep these five or six apps on there because I don't want it in your head. I want those things to be a resource that you look up and do that so that you can actually use your brain power to make critical thinking decisions. And that's in parallel to one of my pilots, a good friend of mine. He's a commander with the U.S. Navy to this day. And he was just astonished at the fact that we tried to stuff everything into our brains and memorize it. And he's like, man, we are in such a checklist culture in aviation that it just seems that you guys are loose cannons. I mean, he actually looked at it as negligent where he's like, I have checklists to make sure the basics are done, which frees up my mind and I'm not being overloaded and I can focus on flying the helicopter during an emergency. I, that's what I need to do. I don't need to remember XYZ emergency. I can look at the list and, and follow those steps. I need to navigate and aviate this helicopter. And that's exactly what you're saying. We need to free up our mind from all these other things that we can memorize so that we can actually treat the patient. I think that's a, so checklists, uh, I think is going to be key both to rushing and being outside your normal environment. It leads us nicely I think into number three, which is group pressure. When I looked at group pressure and thought about being in the presence of a group, being a risk factor for being stupid, my initial thought was turn that 180 and use the group to your advantage as opposed to um, letting the mob control you. You control the mob. You know, if you're the, the, the senior most skilled medic on the scene, you are the boss. Use the family to collect vital history. You know, use the law enforcement to help control the patient, control the family, to control the crowd. Use your, you know, you got first responders or firefighters on the scene. Use your partners, you know, your uh, your other crew to gather and record information. Give everybody clear, calm instructions. And again, reduce the chaos like we talked about with number one. Doesn't mean that you're not moving with intention, but it's not chaotic. And when you combine using the group to your advantage with the checklist. Again, you're trying to turn those things around and rather than making them risks, making them, uh, you know, a help or a benefit. Does that, does that make sense to you, Chris? Yeah. So, um, number three, like you said, was group pressure. And then number four is expert presence. And I'm going to give you uh, a, two, two different stories about these two. Cause one is you're, you're the expert and or somebody is an expert in the group. And the other one is the group mentality. And there's a great TEDx talk that came out of our area here. We have a snow science school. I'm based up here in Montana. And one of the TEDx talks a couple of years ago was from one of the avalanche experts. And he spoke on group think and group mentality. And there was an avalanche where one of his students who in all intents and purposes knows more about avalanche safety and control and she was ultimately killed when they triggered an avalanche during backcountry skiing and they went back to human risk factors and what you ended up doing or what they did in this group and once again let me put that tedx talk about the avalanche into the show notes because i think it's applicable to the ems but with a group when they were all experts and they're heading up there she may have 
and we're just extrapolating, but may have felt, I wouldn't have gone this far if I wasn't with people that aren't as good as I am or have this knowledge, but because she was with people who she thought were better than her or as good of her. And if they felt confident, then clearly I might be missing something about this area. And they ended up growing further out than they probably would have had they not been in, in a group. Now, of course, in snow safety, we always go with a minimum of two people. But it's interesting because then I took that to EMS and I said, you know what? When I'm with a group of people I know, let's go back to Commander Williams with the US Navy as a pilot and a flight nurse, M, Emily. And Emma and Matt and I flew together for many, many years. And then I would work a shift where I would have a brand new pilot and or a brand new nurse, or maybe I covered a different base and my entire crew is new. I would double check everything they were doing. When the pilot was doing the pre-flight checks, I would double check her or him. If my nurse was uh, getting ready to push a medication, I would be super on top of double checking those dosages for that nurse, for him or her, and reviewing that. And I think it's actually the opposite. As I was listening to that TEDx talk about Avalanche, I'm like, I actually have gotten complacent with the group that I know, my partners and the firefighters and the team I know. I'm assuming I know their skill set, so I assume that they're doing okay. And that that gets us to fall into these areas where if we all are making errors or can make errors, and we all could be right in a rush or outside our normal environment or in this group, it's the team that you're most comfortable with is where I always have kind of this, um, you know, that tingling or that sixth sense where we should probably be thinking about this and double checking each other and even being more vigilant in that group. That's a, actually a direction I hadn't thought of. And I, as you're telling the story, uh, I've had a couple different emergency medicine lives in different hospitals, different situations. And my first job out of, out of residency was at a community hospital with a ton of nursing turnover, a ton of young nurses. So when we did airway management, I was very, very aggressive with being uh, direct and verbal and exact and, uh, you know, this dose at this time, then this, uh, you know, and just really made sure that I was dotting I's and crossing T's. And my second job was at uh, one of the local hospitals here in Montgomery County. And the nursing team that was there had been there for forever, longer than I'd been an emergency physician. And they, you know, they could run the airway as easily as the doc could. And the first uh, airway management case I had there, I did the same normal practice pattern that I had had, and they all just busted out laughing. Like, really, you want us to give the sedative before the, before the paralytic doctor? Why would you want us to do that? Well, that doesn't make any sense. Like, and, you know, obviously sarcastically, um, because what I told them was obvious. Right, right. <laughs> but, but, in, but in the end, it was just me being safe. And I think that after my 10th or 15th or 20th airway with that crew, I think it, that's the situation you're talking about with, if you're surrounded by people you trust, sometimes you can be a little more lax and a little less, um, less exacting. And that's probably not a great habit uh, to be into. So move us into five, six, five and six really kind of go together uh, to me. So I'm going to hit those relatively quickly because I think they overlap with some of the others. Focus tasks or tasks that require intense focus and information overload. Um, Again, from a focused task standpoint, we've talked a lot about, you know, checklists and delegation. 
um, and being in a group, I think, again, trying to use those to our advantage for these focused tasks or the complicated ca- tasks like you talked about, Chris, um, so that we can free our mind to make the, uh, the more, um, you know, c- the more patient specific medical decisions. Um, and in information overload, really, that's a skill of sifting and sorting that I don't know how to teach it. I've, I've kind of struggled with that. It's one I think comes with experience. Um, you've got to gather all that information. You've got to sort through the junk. And, you know, I, sometimes, though, when we talk about uh, the stupid, you know, part of overlooking or dismissing crucial information, one that comes up over and over in our run reviews here at MCHD and my own personal uh, you know, bad patient outcomes is the vital signs, right? And I use this all the time, half joking, but we don't call them the kind of important signs or the somewhat important signs or the uh, every now and then these are these are uh, useful signs. They're called the vital signs, right? And those should be what directs our care from the start. Things like um, diaphoresis, power, altered mental status, those big exam findings that are really unassailable. Like, yeah, somebody's altered. If somebody's, you know, pale and ashen, if they're sweat beaded all over their face and it's 42 degrees outside, they're sick. We know that, you know, if their heart rate's 140, we've got to justify and rectify that. If their pressure's 70 and they're pale, don't take the blood pressure seven times expecting it to be 120. If they look like a sheet and their heart rate's 140, and they're had vomiting and diarrhea for a week, then their pressure probably is 70, right? So uh, sift and sort, delegate, uh, use your checklist. I think those things that we've already talked about are going to help us with focus tasks, help us with information overload. And then finally, number seven, uh, fatigue. And again, this is an entire podcast topic in and of itself. Uh, but at least it's becoming less of a culture of, I think at least here at MCHD, as far as toughing it out, uh, that was uh, the way I was trained, you know, 18, 20 years ago was that, you know, no, no retreat, no surrender, no complaining. Uh, But there's a time for rest. There's a time when call volumes reach that critical level. Uh, In MCHD here, we have no questions asked rest time if you need it. And, and, and that's there for a reason. It's there because we know there's a point that you can pass safety you know, where, where it becomes unsafe to continue working. And you wouldn't want your family member cared for by someone who was, who was snoozing or had been up for, you know, 29 straight hours. So use it if you need it. And then as far as emotional fatigue, necessary, I think, to tease that one out because this job's tough. Um, you know, those pediatric arrests, um, you know, mass casualty incidents, um, you know, drowning, those are, those are tough to be a part of. And, you know, debrief, talk counseling, all those things are available and they're beneficial and there's no reason to, to tuck all that inside. It can just metastasize. So that takes us through the seven, rushing outside your normal environment, group pressure, expert presence, focus tasks, information overload, and fatigue. Uh, anything you want to add to any of those, Chris, before we start to wrap it up here? Yeah, I Good job on the fatigue call out. Um, when we're rested, I always think that I always joke, even at home, like the most two important things we need to do is be well fed and well rested. We just make better decisions, right? We make better decisions when we're out with our friends. We make this better decisions as a family. How can we not make better decisions when we're well rested and well fed? 
when we're taking care of patients. And with the emotional side of it, you know, my thing is there isn't a right answer for each people, each person. We all have different thresholds. However, it is a common theme. We've all experienced a level of burnout. We've all gotten frustrated or bitter. We've all had other life factors that have added on top of that. So, you know, those people that are listening, you're not alone. And I think there's good ways to deal with that. Uh, you listed a couple of them, debriefing, talking, counseling, um, and physical activity, right? Walking, um, walking, running, exercising. And then there's poor ways um, that we are really good at in EMS of, <laughs> of, Taking care of. I don't know what I don't know what you're talking about there. What what could, <laughs> exactly. what, what could you possibly mean, Chris? Yeah, exactly right. You know, and and so our list includes alcohol and fast food and and not sleeping and on and on and on. Right. So we we can take all those and they're all outlets and choosing the more positive ones for our body and our health are going to help us in the long run. Yeah, I mean, I've got I've got teens, uh, junior high kids at home, and I as you were talking, you think about, we just went back to school. We're recording, uh, uh, just after the holiday and you know, it's time to get back to school. So what do we do for our kids? Get in bed early, get a good dinner. You know, uh, you gotta, you gotta go to school tomorrow. You need a good night's sleep. And then what do we do when we're going to take care of critically ill patients? We don't sleep, we eat poorly and we don't exercise. And what, uh, you know, why would we expect a different outcome other than poor? Uh, it's, you know, we, we, we tell our kids to do one thing and then we go and do another when we're in a lot, you know, a, a markedly higher stress, higher, uh, uh, you know, overloaded situation than second period, you know, world history. Uh, so I, it's, it's pretty bizarre when you really think about it that way. So to just to take us home again, I want to thank Chris for joining me today uh, as someone who has been there and, and done done that really in every facet of uh, VMS medicine. Uh, it's always uh, nice to have uh, that uh, perspective when we're talking about more operational things than clinical. And I think this one really straddles the line. But just remember, no matter how smart you are, we all work in an environment that's right for stupidity. All seven, every call, just about. Um, Taken back to G.I. Joe, I was a G.I. Joe watcher when I was a kid, and uh, G.I. Joe used to say that knowing is half the battle, and a lot of these risk factors are, you know, they're immovable objects in EMS. We can't get rid of, you know, timestamps and metrics. We can't get rid of, of the dark highway and the car crash. We can't get rid of information overload, but knowing is half the battle and being aware and recognizing the risks and anticipating them, that goes a long way for conquering them. Uh, deliberate practice is vital. I love, I love, I'm gonna steal it, uh, you know, that uh, just, you, you know, rushing equals chaos. And we don't want chaos, we want deliberate action and deliberate, deliberate practice as well, and these are vital. Uh, verbalization, delegation, vital. Nobody needs a checklist until what? Until they do. You can't pick and choose when you're gonna pull your checklist out of your pocket, it's gotta be habit. And then finally, I say it all the time, but vital signs are vital signs. Don't ignore the objective things that are staring you in the face. So again, Chris, thanks for joining us. Uh, we're going to post the uh, Farnham Street article, uh, Chris's checklist manifesto, a couple TED Talks, 
good stuff for you guys to look at after the podcast. As always, if you have questions uh, or ideas for future casts, shoot us an email, podcast at mchd-tx.org. Leave us a review uh, or a like wherever you listen to your podcast. And again, thanks, Chris, and we'll talk to you all soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.